Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. They were in a panic. And like people in a panic, they want solutions. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children. The thing is, there were no satanic cults preying on children. And nearly 30 years later, the people touched by it all are still picking up the pieces. This isn't a work of fiction. This is a work of history. Satanic Panic, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. A rising number of men in Canada's military are coming forward saying that they are victims of sexual misconduct. The Department of National Defense says men made up almost half of the more than 1,400 new reported cases in 2022 and 2023. The DND says they are working to provide better training and supports for male survivors. Larry Beatty is one of those sexual assault survivors. He's a former member of the Canadian Armed Forces. Larry, good morning. Good morning. When you hear that so many men in the armed forces reported sexual misconduct in those years of 2022 and 2023, what goes through your mind? Uh, I'm not surprised. The, the number uh, matched pretty well uh, the number that we had with uh, the, the class action lawsuit. So, yeah, I'm not surprised. You yourself, you mentioned the class action lawsuit. You yourself are a survivor of sexual misconduct and sexual assault from the 1970s. And I know that this is difficult, but you have spoken about it before. So if you don't mind me asking, um, what happened to you? Uh, It was on board the ship, my first ship uh, in 1979 in March, April. I was sexually assaulted by the same guy uh, numerous times in... uh, a deployment and uh, he always told me that uh, if I was to talk to anybody about it uh, I would be I would end up with the, the garbage you know overboard at night they would for, throw you over the side of the ship he would throw me over the side yes um, back then in the in the seventies, we didn't burn our garbage. We just threw everything over the overboard. So, well, you said that one of the reasons why you didn't talk about it, in part because of that threat, but also because you didn't go to your superiors because it was one of your superiors that, didn't had, that, that had assaulted you. That's correct. Yeah, and you know, back back in the nineteen seventy nine. A woman being assaulted, reporting it to the authority, not much was done. So uh, a man reporting a man sexual assault, I I don't think uh, it would have gone very far. So I turned to alcohol and, you know, use uh, alcohol to as a coping mechanism back then. You said that you cried yourself to sleep at night because you didn't know what to do. That's correct, yeah. What, what did you feel you couldn't raise? What, what, what were you looking to talk about? And, and who were you looking to talk to about this? Uh, I tried to talk to the uh, medical assistant that we had on board. And the, the one thing he said was, uh, suck it up, buttercup, pull up your sucks and get to work. You know, I wanted some sort of uh, medication to help me sleep. But no. Uh, couldn't do it. Where do you think that attitude came from in the military? That that, that you would be told 
Um, and as you said, if if women uh, in the military came forward with sexual assault, that they would also um, be be rebuffed. Those allegations would be rebuffed. But for men, where do you think that attitude came from? That resistance. Well, I think it's it's part of the old boys network back then. You know, um, everything was handled by the military police. So you know, you go through boot camp, all trades. Are in the same platoon as you are in boot camp. So you have, you know, uh, military police and whatever trade are in there. So often you end up in the same area when you're posted. So military police investigating an aggressor might have been on the same platoon. Uh, so they're buddy buddy, and you know, thing didn't happen the way it should have been mm. back then. You were part of a class action lawsuit, as you mentioned, with other survivors from the armed forces. What did that yes. What did that teach you about how the military has changed or hasn't changed when it comes to this issue? Well, since the report from uh, Madame Arbor, the class action suit came after, the year after, and with the class action suit, all 48 uh implementation that Madame Marber had recommended have been implemented to some degree. So, um, you know, the, the class action lawsuit has done quite a bit to move forward with uh, recommendations. So. And this report, I mean, you mentioned the report by Madame Arbour. This is from the su former Supreme Court Justice, Louise Arbour, who looked into yeah. sexual misconduct within the military. I've spoken to her on this, and one of the things that she has talked about is the need for a culture change within the military, particularly when it comes to, to sexual assault and sexual misconduct. What would that culture change look like from your perspective? That's a good question. Uh, that's that's one of the things that we uh, wanted to change most with uh, the class action lawsuit. So the culture, instead of having to report to directly to your supervisor, we now have uh, the Sexual Misconduct Support and Resource Center, the SMRC, and Veterans Affairs. They're both working together on this. It's part of DND. But they're not part of the uh, chain of command. Mm. So anybody can can report something through the support center, the SMRC, and they'll guide the person as to where to go and what to do. What do you think needs to change when it comes to the culture to better support men who are coming forward with allegations like this? Well, right now, uh, with the recommendation that, None of the investigation are being conducted by the military police. It's all done by the local police force, wherever you are, whether it's uh, the OPP or Quebec police force or, you know, the RCMP or city police for that matter. So everything is being reported to them and they're the one doing the investigation. So there's no more, you know, of that old boys network kind of idea. Would that be enough, do you think? I mean, you use the phrase, suck it up, buttercup. Would that be enough to, to, to stop that sort of attitude amongst men? That, that, that as a man coming forward with these sorts of allegations, you should just tough it out um, if it's being investigated by, by people outside of the military? Is it enough? 
it's never going to be enough. Like you said, 1,400 people have reported sexual misconduct in the last two years. So um, when will it end? Uh, I don't know. The, the culture like the, the needs to change for sure. Um, but I think with all the 48th recommendation that Madame Arbor had implemented, uh, it's a good start. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Okay. Yeah. And encouraged that other people are talking about this? Yes. Yes. Uh, ever since the, 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 the class action lawsuit, which I was uh, one of the plaintiffs, uh, a lot of the men in the military still serving or former member have reached out to me and, uh, you know, just to talk. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's going the right way, I think. Larry, I'm glad to talk to you about this. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Larry Beatty is a sexual assault survivor and former member of the Canadian Armed Forces. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. The percentage of military members who reported being sexually assaulted by another member of the military more than doubled between 2018 and 2022, according to Statistics Canada. We requested an interview with someone from the Sexual Misconduct Support and Resource Centre, which is part of the Department of National Defence, but no one was made available. Canadian Armed Forces Chief of Professional Conduct and Culture, Lieutenant General Jenny Canagna, talked about the numbers on CBC's Power and Politics last month. We understand that this can be both encouraging and at the same time a bad news, uh, meaning that it could mean an increase in awareness. People are more aware of what constitutes uh, mis sexual misconducts mm -hmm. and being more familiar as to what to, to report. Uh, but at the same time, we want to eradicate uh, those misconducts within our teams. She also told host David Cochran that the military is trying to make it easier for people to report sexual misconduct. So we know that uh, there are barriers to reporting. Our members have clearly stated as well that even with new policies and processes in place and a safe environment, that they would still not come forward with complaints which is why the approach we have taken over the last two years is come up uh, with a tailored approach to reporting, more victim-centric. For those who do choose to come forward, DND admits that men who report being abused have not always felt, quote, safe, secure, and supported. And so the Department of National Defense is looking to hire outside help to provide better services to men who report sexual misconduct. One of the counseling groups it's considering is the Ottawa-based psychotherapy firm Men and Healing. Rick Goodwin is the firm's managing director. He specializes in treating male survivors of trauma. He's consulted with both the Canadian and U.S. military He's in our studio in Ottawa. Rick, good morning to you. Good morning, Matt. You heard Jeannie Cannonet say that this higher number of men coming forward could be the result of growing awareness. Why do you think there's been an increase in men coming forward with allegations of sexual misconduct and sexual assault? Well, it's interesting. I, I think we can say that in, we've always known that there are many men um, out there 
And we've, we found that out through survey work, and I'm, I'm thinking particularly of an American, uh, some survey work in the American military. The, the shift now, it's the, we're talking about numbers of reporting. And I think that's a good news uh, story because, you know, guys are actually saying the words out loud. Mm. And why are they saying the words out loud? They've been asked about that. So I think there is a shift going on, and it's, it's heading in, the, in, in a good direction. The Department of National Defense admits that men in past and perhaps still do not feel, in its words, safe, secure, and supported when they make those allegations. When you take a look at the military culture in particular when it comes to men reporting those allegations, what is... What is preventing them from feeling safe, secure, and supported? Well, I think there's there's three components to that. I mean, and we could start off at any any place. But the first one is men themselves, uh, men uh, who are survivors of of trauma, sexual trauma, profoundly underreport. And we we've known this uh, throughout years. Uh, there are a lot of studies to s- suggest that. So. Men's inability to put words to it may be just in terms of their gender coding. Uh, secondly, we need people to listen, and uh, that requires a lot, particularly so that most people think that victims of sexual violence are, are female-identified, not male-identified. So there's a, there's needs to be changed there. And then, of course, where are they having these conversations how do men reach out? Uh, where do they get that support from? Then that intermediary, you know, is 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 another component to the the change that's needed. Tell me more about that. I mean, how and how the needs of male survivors of sexual assault will be different from from those of women. Well, um, I mean, we do training on this, and and it, it takes a couple of days to really get into it all. I can give you just a couple of highlights, but just first of all, the profound underreporting. We have to start off there, that even though men are not talking about it, not putting words to it, doesn't mean that they have that experience. That it's happening even if they aren't reporting. Yeah, you know, it just it, it's it's the only understanding that we can figure out from the research is that it has to do with this notion, what we refer to as the male code, where the core definition of masculinity is a is a word that will look like invulnerability. Well, if you're invulnerable then you cannot be abused. You cannot be assaulted. And so this is this is the start off, this is the, how we start off this topic, by, by having to talk about the silence behind that. Now, we do know that, that gender plays a significant role, not only in the immediacy of the assault or the, the wounding, but the post-traumatic expression. And, and here, while trauma is somewhat universal in terms of core responses, men and women do express different trauma symptoms. They have different presenting issues. And we could go through each one of them. You know, Alcohol and drug use, this is, happens much more with, with male survivors. Men self-injure in a different way. Self-injury is a pattern of a coping strategy, um, if you've experienced trauma, abuse, men do that much differently than what women present. So it requires the listener, the helper, the service provider to, to be aware of these things and to understand different trauma expressions that men may have. How do you go about tackling that shame and stigma so that, I mean, the men will feel comfortable in even coming forward? With, with with the stories of what they have gone through. Part of this is about what, what you've defined as a male-centered approach to therapy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
In Ottawa, at our clinic, we, we have a big push in terms of group therapy. And obviously, we do lots of individual therapy. But the notion of being in a circle of other men with, with like experience, um, the guys are very quick to be compassionate with each other. It's quite moving that over, you know, second session in, third session in, the guys are referring to each other, oh, yeah, I, I was there, man, you know, I, you know, guys referring to each other as brothers. Are you surprised by that, given what you've said, but also what we know more broadly about the shame and stigma that's, that's, that can be attached to this because um, of cultural norms? Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm, I mean, I'm very touched by it. Mm. Um, it's, it's, the compassion is beautiful. Where it comes to the shame, though, is that after they have that opportunity to feel that warmth and support, at one stage a penny will drop. And they're going to say, that guy's going to say to himself, how is it that I can be so compassionate to all these other guys in my circle, but I can't do that to myself? And there, I think we've, we witness the shift of shame, which we refer to as the, the master emotion of trauma. And if we can shift that shame, get the fellow moving away from the most difficult emotion anyone can experience, then we can see profound growth in that individual. And, and group work allows for that process better than individual therapy. What does a treatment plan look like for those male survivors who do come forward? Well, uh, at our clinic, it would be, first of all, uh, a sit-down assessment. Uh, in that first meeting, it can be two meetings. We do some, some psychological testing um, around issues of post-traumatic stress, clinical depression, patterns of dissociation. And then we make a plan, whether it's individual work, group work, a combination of both. Some men prefer to do individual work until they kind of get the, the chutzpah to join the group programming. And then group programming may be their, their strategy for a while. We have not just trauma programming, but programming for you know, anger management, uh, which is could be a trauma presentation right there. We have a, another program called Sexual Integrity for men with compulsive uh, or problematic sexual behaviors. Mm. That also can be a trauma expression in men. Um, so we will devise a treatment plan u- utilizing our, our resources in the order and preference of what the fellow wants to work with. Just before I let you go, I mean, are you encouraged by the military acknowledging that it has a problem when it comes to supporting these men, but also saying that it's going to try to do better, in part because of what's at stake here. For sure. For sure. We've always got to have hope in this work. I think we're going in the right direction. And there's a lot of work still to come ahead. This notion of finding a place, a resource, a way, kind of a uh, one-stop shopping for men in the forces to, to reach out, regardless of what their trauma presentation is, uh, I think is going to have to be part of that. And as Larry said, do you need to take that? I mean, you have a vested interest in this in some ways, but do you need to take that out of the military so that men truly feel comfortable coming forward? Well, I, I think we need to pre- present options to survivors of trauma. Uh, we need to give them more choice, and uh, some of that may be within the within the within the forces, and some of that may be uh, community based. Rick, good to hear from you on this. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Rick Goodwin is managing director of the Ottawa-based psychotherapy firm Men and Healing. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.